0: From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. My name is Harold Longley. I'm a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Alberta. My dissertation research is about the development of the synthetic oil the Alberta oil sands industry in northeastern Alberta. I'm looking at it from the context of, you know, the the creation of a resource extraction space and like what that looks like from both like the the business and technology side and then how that you know, affects people and changes human relationships with nature on a local scale. So in this case, it would be, you know, the transition from like an indigenous, you know, primarily fur trading and subsistence economy into uh, an industrial resource extraction focused area. So the the Alberta, uh, the Athabasca bitumen deposit, if you will, is in the northeast corner of the province of Alberta. Um, That's on... The west coast of Canada, but before the mountains, and uh, it's um, it's the the Ath- it's the Athabasca River Valley, which flows down, which is a river that flows from the mountains, from um, near Jasper down to um, Lake Athabasca and the Peace Athabasca Delta, which I believe is the third biggest freshwater delta in the world. Um, and this was a uh, this was a, a huge deposit of um, of bitumen, which is like sort of a is a heavy, like slightly decomposed hydrocarbon, which is in huge, high, huge quantities. But yeah, my period is looking at um, really post World War Two to uh, to the early two thousands. I mean, archival records kind of dry up by the late um, by the late eighties, just with the sort of thirty year release deadlines and stuff like that. But you know, this is a project that's very much concerned with the um, you know the contemporary manifestations of historical problems. Um, But yeah, it's one of these it's one of these industries where people have known about the deposit for a very long time. So people, um, you know, from indigenous people to fur traders have known about the the abundance of this this resource, you know, going back hundreds of years. But, you know, the remoteness, the the complexity of separating um, the bitumen from the sand that it's in, um, and upgrading that to a marketable hydrocarbon has been a huge pro- problem that sort of plagued people for um, for years. So there's been lots of you know crazy adventures going up there trying to uh, trying to build extraction facilities, but it's really kind of been a technology and an industry that's always emerged in types in times of crisis. So it's um, it's it you know there were pushes one big push during the first world war during the second world war the federal government got involved and then after the second world war um bigger private companies and eventually sun oil got involved and so sun oil which is what i'm the records of which i'm looking at here um they funded great canadian oil sands limited which was the first um i would say commercial scale plant and um and that was to produce about uh, 30 to 45,000 barrels a day of synthetic crude oil. So when you when you extract uh, a heavy hydrocarbon like bitumen, it has to go through what's called the, the hot water separation process. So the it gets they literally boil it, and then the um, the bitumen is surrounds a grain of sand, which is separated by a layer of water, and that's really important because there's other bituminous sand deposits around the world, but most of them, my understanding is that most of them don't have that layer of water and that makes it difficult to separate it with it in a cheap way. So they boil it and then they once you they skim the bitumen off of the surface and then um, and they put it through the um, the fractional distillation process so it like they they heat it to like four hundred degrees and then the various level the various weights of hydrocarbon rise in a vertical chamber and they can and, and the the the, the, extra, the upgrading process they separate out the various different grades of hydrocarbon and they can synthesize them so this is the the synthesis of the uh, synthetic so they can synthesize them into a marketable hydrocarbon that can be processed by conventional refineries so what's I think the the, the grade of oil in in contemporary in contemporary languages is sweet synthetic and that is up there with um, with light High quality light sweet hydrocarbons, because there's like really like you know we think of like the price of oil, but like the price of oil is like which oil, what place, and and who's buying it, and there's so many different gradients, and really like the price of oil is sort of this like random sampling of like the averages of these different gradients but yeah so now for example one thing that um, makes it different is that you know now the the oil sands industry itself produces so much that they can't not all of it is upgraded uh, into into synthetic crude oil a lot of it is sold as as dill bit diluted bitumen so they so they actually pump up a lot of super light um uh diluent from the south so i think i think if, i think some of that comes from the Bakken um and then they mix that with the uh with with bitumen and then so then they get like a pipelineable because if raw bitumen can't be put in a pipeline so then they can then they can ship that to southern refineries that are capable of producing of capable of processing heavy oil this is actually one of the big issues with the Keystone XL pipeline is that there's all sorts of heavy oil capable refineries on the gulf coast Um, and so this allows companies to um, to build uh pipelines that are to, to to build extraction facilities that don't have to have as much upgrading capacity because that's super 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 expensive to build yeah. so the hagley museum uh, holds uh the sun oil archive and uh that has um various or a, huge mountain of papers from lots of different projects. And so uh, a lot of what it deals with is the, uh, a lot of what I'm finding is, is documents from like the mid 60s to the mid 70s, um, that deal with like the financial and like high upper level management um, of, the, of the Great Canadian Oil Sands facility. Because post 1978, I believe it was incorporated as Suncor, which is now a predominantly Canadian owned Company and I think it was kind of hived off. I don't really know the details of how it got hived off, but I think it's actually separate from from Sun Oil now um, or Sunoco. Um, but yeah, so what I'm finding is uh, there's a lot of presidential papers. A lot of this stuff. A lot of this stuff is like the detailed. Um, finance because this was a crazy project for them to, to build one thing that's kind of interesting that i'm one of my questions is that you know in the mid in the mid 70s uh, uh like in response to the opec crisis that was when the synthetic fuels industry really took off you know that's when exxon was getting involved in in with colorado oil shales and like this is when deep water drilling really took off but sun was involved like a good 10 plus years earlier and so it's really um it's really kind of surprising when you look at it in a historical context, because I think they spent, they originally agreed to spend 67 million 1970s, 1960s dollars, which is inflation adjusted about about eight times that in 2015, which is a lot of money. By the time the thing was actually built, I think there were $260 million in, which is like well, almost $2 billion, which is a huge amount for a company like that. It, you know, it's really interesting because a lot of this was uh, you know, private. Um, this is a private company. It was still owned by the Pew family, so apparently J. Howard Pew was uh, super enthusiastic about um, about synthetic oil because he was really concerned about energy security. He hated communists. He was a big, you know, conservative who wanted North American energy security. And so they pumped a lot of money that might not have been um, so forthcoming in a publicly uh, in a public company. Um, but it's quite interesting because after there was a there was a the Sun Oil merged with Sunray DX, which is another oil company in. Um, I think it was 1970. I, I don't. I have to pull the date on that again. Um, and there are all these letters from shareholders suing, So people were suing Sun for misrepresenting the liability and losses that they were taking on in northern Alberta. Because they really, they weren't just building, what I'm learning from, from the, from the, from the records is they weren't just building, um, they weren't just building the the facility. They were completely transforming the entire region. They were building roads. They built a bridge across the Athabasca River, which is this huge river. It's one of the biggest rivers in Canada. Um, they were, uh, you know, and this is this is three hundred miles from Edmonton, which is the most northerly city in North America, over a million people today. So it's one of the biggest it's like the biggest Northern city in North America. So this is really, really far away from stuff. Like even now um, with like a beautiful brand new highway, it's, uh, you know, it's it's two, it's a five hour drive basically at, you know, 80 miles an hour. <laughs> and so it's a, uh, it's a really remote place. And then, you know, they had to, they had to chop down trees and, you know, and it's all, it's also, all the terrain is muskeg up there, which is kind of this like swampy, um, swampy muddy uh terrain and so in the summer it's like almost impassable by uh by by vehicle and so you know they're they're using these like uh bobcat style or like bombardier like like almost like snow snow machines snowcat style like tank things to get in get in there and just yeah so um yeah and they had to build hospitals and housing and all sorts of stuff my understanding is a lot of their middle eastern supplies were compromised during the suez crisis in 1956 so that sort of like coalesced their resolve to to try and build build um build a project in in northern alberta but one thing that you know this comes a little bit later but one thing that really differentiates uh the the bitumen industry from other synthetic oil operations in other parts of the world is the amount of government investment like there is a huge amount of uh public finance um debt debt guarantees tax uh tax modifications um they did they they, like great canadian oil sands did a huge um share distribution to, to the public in Alberta. So, um, you know, other, other historians, um, like, so for example, Exxon was really involved in Syncrude, which is the other bigger plant that was built in the 1970s. That was sort of happening along the same time uh, at the same time. There was planning that as they were finishing some, uh, great Canadian oil sands. But those, you know, Joe Pratt, who's a, who's an energy historian, he argues that, you know, a lot of other industries failed that were slightly similar, but in Canada there was so much government investment and so much public Financial support that that really allowed it to get to the because these things all operated on an economy of scale so you need to build something absolutely massive before you start making any money and that's really expensive from from looking at from the perspective of Alberta like this one thing that a lot of that that needs to be really clear is that north northeastern Alberta is really um, you know this is like the the best fur trapping territory in in the world like there's some there's you know he, the hudson's bay company moved in there from like the the early uh from like the mid 1700s and um it's uh and it's been widely populated with indigenous people who are who were who were very heavily involved in the fur industry and so the the oil sands industry kind of overlaid that or interfered with that um With that geography and so for example like the 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 tailings pond site was uh for the for the um for great canadian oil sands was built on top of uh tar island which was um the summer hunt camps for all sorts of indigenous people in uh in 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 the in that part of the region so the nearest settlement would be fort mackay and so you know there's there's a lot of um and then, and then all these things were built like right beside the river. And there's a huge there's a huge process of, you know, when you when you're separating the um, the hot water separation process involves the creating the creation of massive tailings ponds. So you have to dump all this um, this polluted water uh, it somewhere. And so they were filling up this island, basically, which is right in the middle of the river. And so, you know, this is the root of massive contemporary downstream impacts like by the 1980s there were oil spills and people were complaining of odors and a lot of and and the people from that community argued that you know by the mid by the mid 80s their 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 ability to subsist from their natural resources of hunting and trapping was so badly undermined by the environmental impacts of these projects so they were basically fighting for employment and economic benefits so it it kind of created this huge amount of downstream impact and local impact it's kind of and and today this has be, become this, is, this has become this huge like environmental controversy um worldwide partly because it's just like a such a very such a um it, it's such a visual Disturbance, Like you can, like you see these photos in National Geographic where you can fly over. And it's just like, I think it's like 500 square kilometers, like 300 plus square miles of, uh, of, of surface mining. Um, and very little of it has been effectively reclaimed. Um, and all of these environmental impacts are like very, very, um, contested. So the, you know, one, one thing that I'm arguing in some of my other work is that, um, you know that the the regulatory, uh, the environmental regulation and research that was sort of the other side of the development of all, of, of of this kind of energy was really, um, you know, shortchanged and has been more or less inadequate and hasn't responded to the the pace and scale of of development. But it's drastically this sort of like it, the industrial incursion has completely changed the historical relationships with nature that it, that especially indigenous peoples have had because you know now it, it's, it's greatly interfered with hunting yeah sure a lot of people have made in lo- like profitable lives in the industrial economy but that's only that's only some people and there's been a lot of loss there are a lot of unexplained health impacts and and um, and whatnot the main town at the confluence of the clearwater and the athabasca rivers is fort mcmurray and so that's sort of like the that's sort of like the the big city now. That's uh, that's close to close to the industry, but it's still about twenty miles south. So a lot of people had to live in work camps at site, and um, but then a lot, but the town obviously grew quite a lot as well. So the company built housing uh, both at site and in town, and a lot of people are from um, a lot of people are from the south, and a lot of people are from southern Canada and from the U.S. Uh, especially at that time, a lot of the big industrial construction companies were actually American, and they did they were you know the question was hiring Canadian workers, let alone hiring in local people. Um, and so I, it's kind of been a combination of, uh, it's, it's always been a very transient place, right? A lot of people go there. It's kind of, especially in like the last 10, 15 years, it's been this like, you know, Fort McMoney, it's been like the place that people go, you know, to, to pull themselves out of debt or to like change their, change their financial lives. And so it's very much been a, a place of, of, uh, that nobody that a lot of people don't call home but on the other hand a lot of people have called it home it's just such a the volume of people especially in the last in the last 20 years there's kind of like two commercial development phases so um uh, I was saying, saying earlier how it's kind of a crisis fuel. So from the mid '60s, when, when Great Canadian Oil Sands started, it opened its doors in 1967, following the OPEC crisis in uh, 19 from 1973 forward. Uh, there was a huge increase in development. So the Syncrude project, which is another uh, another project that was even bigger than than uh, Great Canadian that that opened in 1970 uh, 1976 78 I believe um, and uh, and that was a hundred thousand barrels a day and this and there were all sorts of plans on the table for um, for even bigger projects in the 1980s and then of course in uh, you know in 1983 the 1982 oil prices started to collapse and so the oil sands I would argue kind of went on went on ice like it's still pretty it's still it's they still maintain the the existing facilities still sort of maintain production but there was no new construction until um until the late 90s early 2000s and then post 9-11 especially the former the Athabasca region became a part of uh U.S energy policy again because of the instability in the middle east and so in the last and then that also cor- corresponded with a huge increase in in oil prices and so for the last 15 years or so until 2014 um it's just been a period of massive uh, massive boom and huge expansion like i think there was like two or three plants uh up until 19 up until the mid 90s and now there's like over 100 granted a lot of that are different like smaller scale ones but it's uh it's it's completely changed there's a lot of like funny things that are very useful to my research so for example the amount of time these guys spent in uh in jasper so jasper's like it's kind of like Banff. it would be you know like aspen or something like that for your american uh listeners uh but it's like a you know it's a mountain resort town and so they'd be flying up in their pri- private jet from philadelphia they'd go to fort mcmurray for like five minutes tour around go see the premiere in edmonton and then go to jasper and like hang out and play golf for like two weeks And, uh, you know, all these hilarious memos and things like ordering boxes of cigars to be sent for, to Jasper Park Lodge which I find hilarious because you know the, the next the one memo will be like talking about you know how bad the threat of communism is and then the next will be ordering Cuban cigars um, so that's I thought that was hilarious but I think generally you know in Canadian archives um, and public archives it's really difficult to get the corporate voice to get the, the, the perspective of the companies and so so from my previous research what I've seen a lot is um, is the company uh, begging for, Uh, regulatory and tax concessions to try and help finance this project and what it looks like from only that perspective is that the company is you know squeezing the government for all it's worth and the pub that that increases the public liability it reduces the environmental regulation and all these things but by spending time at Hagley and reading the Sun oil papers it shows that the company was um, in way over its head and that they were uh, very, very challenged by the finances of the project. And, um, they spent a lot of time, the top executives and, um, board of directors were heavily, heavily involved in trying to make this, this project work. And it, you know, it really did a big number on their, on their finances. I, I'm a very visual person. I love, um, I love photographs and I love um and and so so one things that I found actually is the original plans for the plant so there's a giant book with like 400 pages of the of the original hand-drawn blueprints and those are absolutely gorgeous I think like the drafting from the 19 from that period is just it's like it, it is each each page is a work of art it must have taken hours to produce those uh to produce those so actually getting to like see those and hold those was really amazing and also the photographic collection so Sun Oil has a huge collection of um of slides and negatives and prints of of the production of the of the construction process and early production and all of that and it's really amazing because I think um you know, for example, there's a there's a Canadian photographer who did a lot of industrial photography in the 19, from like the, the post-war period to, to the present, and he kind of talks about how, um, George Hunter, I think his name is, about how um, from, you know, when the environmental movement really became a big thing, um, It sort of ruined industrial photography because post-war it was sort of this like industrial triumphalism like look at this amazing thing that we're creating whereas after that it turned into like you know shooting the plant like through the trees to like show how like nature still survives but this stuff's raw and it's real and it's uh, kind of an amazing perspective on how these things looked from the inside and how they were built that you don't get from Uh, you don't get from contemporary images and also the quality is amazing like it looks like they had contracts with magnum and like real serious photographic studios and had like top-notch professionals creating this stuff so someone who kind of like (laughs) finds that stuff so fascinating that was really cool Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.